Hello there, it's the Whole Tooth Podcast back for another series. I'm Fintan Harrahan, Chief Executive of the Irish Dental Association and host of this round of episodes as we delve into the issues affecting dentists the length and breadth of the country. We'll mark the association's centenary year as we reminisce over the past 100 years and assess where dentistry is in Ireland at the moment and where it's going into the future. In this episode, we're pausing for reflection as we look back on a number of the association's key milestones over the past number of years. And we'll be speaking to recently retired Dean of the Dental School, Professor June Nunn. But first, we're joined by Ambrose McLaughlin, a long-serving dentist and former Secretary General of the Department of Health, amongst many other uh, distinguished appointments. Ambrose, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Ambrose, can you tell us a little bit, because you have a family steeped in the profession, about your, your family background and your initial dental education? Oh, well, first of all, my family have been associated with the Dental Association since 1947. My involvement in the Dental Association started when I was about five. Right. <laughs> so I then went on, um, because my father was involved heavily, I met the, the luminaries of the profession, Joe Maloney, for example. He was the great biscuit man of IDA House. He looked after the kids of the people who attended at various meetings. Apart from that, there was the great Art McGann, who was the president in the 1970s. When I moved to be an undergraduate student in dentistry, I became the president of the Dental Students Council. And of course, who was president but Mr. McGann. So we discussed the deficits in terms of the dental hospital and Mr. McGann suggested we should do something about it. And he did because he backed the students at the first strike and we then got the dental hospital refurbished with a, a coalition of the willing. For the first time, we put together a coalition of the willing. When I, when I graduated, I went on to become a member of the Irish Dental Association in 1975. And the Dental Association led the new structures at the time, which are still in place, uh, the new structures for the Help or Dental Service. It also led the major changes that took place in the Social Welfare Dental Benefits Scheme and it was also through the 80s it got involved in the creation of the first consultants' posts in dentistry, particularly in orthodontics and oral surgery. So the Irish Dental Association was also hugely involved in the developments of the dental schools in Cork and Dublin. Now, the Dental Association as well, of course, had a very direct role and a lead role in terms of salaries and wages for dentists. Uh, at that time, it was your uh, predecessors, people like Leo McCauley, and, and, and prior to that, I should have mentioned Jim Ivers, who was one of the first general secretaries who helped students on their way, uh, people like Tom Lacey, uh, and then we had Leo McCauley and, and Don Lankins. But it was the Irish Dental Association that led all of the salary and wage negotiations that read the restructuring of the dental profession. The Irish Dental Association, uh, if you like, created the coalition of the willing that formed the 1985 Dentist Act. I was part of that team, led by the luminaries of the profession, Rodney Burris for Dockrell, uh, Professor Brian Barrett from Cork, Norman Butler. Um, and then along came the, uh, the next generation of leaders who contributed to the implementation of the act. People like Colm O'Sullivan became the first president. Theo Handley, cousin of mine, a president of the Irish Dental Association in due course, he was a key player. Uh, then we had, and I, I know people like Eamon Croke have succeeded at, 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 at the Dental Council, but the Irish Dental Association was critical to getting that 85 Act. The Irish Dental Association um, was uh, well organised, well structured, and it was part of the fabric of, of Irish dentistry. And I'm fully and completely convinced that, in fact, the future of the Irish Dental Association is guaranteed and hugely important, not only for dentists, but for the oral health and well-being of the Irish people. I refer particularly to the Dental Health Foundation. 
the Irish Dental Association was the, were the creators of that. They put together people like the late Brendan Lyle Piggott, who was the Chief Dental Officer of the Eastern Health Board. He led that for many years, and I'm very pleased to see his daughter Mary continues with that to this day. But the Irish Dental Association also were hugely influential in terms of continuing and professional development. In fact, there would never have been any continuing professional development or any uh, postgraduate training in a lot of circumstances without the assistance of the Irish Dental Association. And it was more than assistance, in fairness. It was leadership. So we all had the culture of going to the annual scientific meetings. But, of course, there was the Western branch and the Metropolitan branch and the Midwestern branch. There were umpteen people like the late Dennis Reen from Kerry, who became president of the association, who I worked with at many annual scientific conferences. People like the late Peter Leo Heslin, um, who was a, an eminent teacher at the dental hospital, an eminent periodontist, who, who also took a big interest in, in uh, Joe Craven, was Hugh Barry, I could list them all. But the Irish Dental Association provided, if you like, the, the structures that enabled us to in, in, in be involved in continuing professional development. And that was for the whole profession. It wasn't just for general dental practitioners. There were for the health board dental surgeons. There was their own annual seminar. They also worked very closely with the Society of Chief and Principal Dental Surgeons. Now, it was easy because basically everybody was a member of the Irish Dental Association. And though some people did join the union, the Irish Dental Association, still had the leadership role. So there was always a good president of the Irish Dental Association's health board group. And they were particularly instrumental in looking at courses and programmes to develop dentists. Uh, the other thing I think the Irish Dental Association did was it created a culture of collegiate, uh, if you like, a collegiate approach to dentistry, uh, which was unique amongst the professions at the time. And so I, I'm fully convinced about the value. And in fact, my own personal career would never have happened without having not been a member of the Irish Dental Association. Well, that, that's a great endorsement. And can I take you back? You mentioned about the legislation, which uh, was long overdue now, uh, uh, many years later, the, the 1985 Act. And, you know, dentists today would say, you know, it seems we have great difficulty in persuading the powers mm. that be that there's there's a need for for changes to the legislation. Can you tell us a little bit about the approach that was taken by the association? Because I presume the same challenges existed at, the, at that time. Well, what, what, what the then president of the Irish Dental Association did and the Gen, general secretaries, they formed a coalition of the willing to create the, 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 the new legislation. But they were dependent on the 1928 Act. So I remember being the secretary of the Health Board Dental Surgeons Group and I was invited as the secretary to join a group of people led by the late John McAllister. Um, uh, people like Norman Butler played a key role. People like Brian Barrett played a key role. And the, the dean of the dental school in Dublin at the time, Rodney Dockrell. So we had a huge range of academic people and people from general practice, like my cousin Theo Handley played a role. Uh, I, uh, John Garvey was uh, married to another cousin of mine, many uh, many cousins in the Irish Dental Association. But he was married to Hillary. Now, he was... Uh, he was one of the first um, candidates to stand for Dáil Éireann. And he told us in very explicit terms that we were going to have to go political. So rather than going party political, we chose to go across par party politics. So we put together a team of people. And uh, I always remember Art McGann. Uh, now, I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm doing anything inappropriate in, in saying that Art McGann was actually Charlie Hawhey's dentist. And it was the late Art McCann who told me something very important about dentists. 
they're in a unique position because every politician is going to have at some point to sit in a chair and listen. The question is, can we get the message right? And in fact, McGann and myself put together messages for we, we, we operated on both sides of the house. So we influenced people like Professor Jim Doog, who was the leader of the Shannon, and, and we influenced the Fianna Fáil leader in the Shannon. And we spoke with the Labour Party minister, was Barry Desmond, and then Fergus O'Brien was the Fine Gael Minister of State. Charles Hawhey was also instrumental in that because, in fact, he was the guy privately over a cup of tea who told us that this is not a matter for Dáil Éireann. This you take through Shannon Éireann. And you make it all, all parties will agree to this. And he announced that the importance of Jim Doog, Jim Doog was remarkable. So he, he took the legislation on board. Now, here's the admission. The legislation was written by the Irish Dental Association. It was amended by the civil service and the attorney general. The route to success was the Irish Dental Association persuaded the dental council, persuaded the dental hospitals, persuaded the practicing profession to get this coalition of the willing to work. And it did. I was subsequently elected to the Dental Council, which took office in 1985. And the Irish Dental Association candidates, they elected a slate. The seven members were straight from IDA House. We had one role in life, which was to get this thing working, and we did. Very good. Uh, and I suppose it's very instructive mm. g- considering the, the, the problems we're dealing with right now. Can you tell us a little bit then as well about, so soon after uh, we had the medical card mm. scheme introduced in 1994, and that was a big departure mm. from the ad hoc arrangements as they were known. Can you tell us your recollections of the, the role of the association? The association had a central role. I, I think it's it's probably different for people in, in 2023 to understand this, but the Irish Dental Association was central to everything that happened in dentistry across Ireland. It had huge connections internationally with Northern Ireland, for example, with the British Dental Association, with the American Dental Association. We had international expertise from people like Bill Bowen, Professor Michael DC. So when we were putting together various schemes, the Irish Dental Association led it. It was an ambition of the Irish Dental Association, still is an ambition, to have a comprehensive, easily accessible, affordable oral health care system for the people of Ireland. I have always been a strong advocate of the social welfare dental scheme model, which I think is the basis for bringing the future of dentistry forward where you have a grant and aid approach which enables people to get a contribution from the state but enables for the more complex and and other procedures that are uh, high-tech procedures which could not be afforded by the state even at the present time to be afforded by by people as well. I was a big advocate as well of of dental insurance, of health insurance. I'm delighted to see that you have D-Care today and you have VHI Dental and I'd highly recommend that to any of my friends as a way of ensuring that you have ease of access uh, to the best of, of, of oral health. <clears throat> but I think the key thing that really marks out the Irish Dental Association's involvement was their insistence on quality, not quantity. And I do note with some regret the decisions that were taken by government in the area of austerity when it cut the, the, the scheme. One of the things that politicians and civil servants don't understand about dentistry, particularly those who are in general practice, is their overheads are very high. The investment is very significant. 
So the, the, the any state scheme or insurance scheme has to compensate, but it must be sustainable and viable in, into the future. So that if I am a dentist in Ballina, where my father was, that in fact, if I invest in a dental surgery and a dental practice, that in fact, the state is going to make a contribution to that on, on an, in an ongoing way. They do it in pharmacy and they do it in medicine. Uh, there is a huge need for a coalition of the willing to drive the agenda to drive a 2024 or 2025 Dentist Act, uh, which would, I think, mirror what's happened in pharmacy, where I led for years, and also what's happened in medicine and nursing. But I'm very confident about the future of Irish dentistry because you have the brightest and best in terms of the graduates. And the leadership is still there. It's just a question of putting together in the cake mix all of the ingredients, and I'd have no doubt it'll be successful. And can I, in that uh, in the same vein and consistent with what you've said, I recall, and it was I, I can now reveal very much your own personal uh, advocacy of the idea, the establishment in 2013 of what we referred to as the National Oral Health Forum. Yeah. So around the corner in the Dublin Dental School, the late Professor Jimmy Steele was our chair on the day and we had representatives from all across, as you mm. said, a, a coalition of the willing and you attended yourself and you, you, you spoke on the day. Can you? That was an unprecedented initiative. Can you tell us what you think? Well, first of all, what were your recollections? What do you think was achieved by that exercise? Well, first of all, I, it was a, it was an attempt to create a coalition of the willing to focus on oral health, and I saw all of these particularly strong people making a contribution from the various segments of the profession. But they needed a vehicle to deliver that. Uh, I was very pleased that the Irish Dental Association were very disposed to that and were prepared to lead it. I had hoped that that forum would actually be the coalition of the willing that would would transfer their thinking onto things like a new dentist act uh, that would design and reshape the the policies in oral health. I have had the experience of dealing with some of the most complex policy issues for Irish governments in my period in the Department of Health. So we had to reach a consensus on the development of the National Children's Hospital. It is the right decision to go to St. James's. 28 of the best specialties are there. And we got a coalition within paediatric dentistry, or sorry, paediatrics and and, uh, across the the hospital system um, uh, to to drive it and and develop it. We'd been waiting for a children's hospital since 1960. Uh, I I also saw in terms of, say, Healthy Ireland, um, a, a huge need uh, to focus on the health and well-being of the people of Ireland into 2025 and beyond. A lot of this I'd learned from my time in the Irish Dental Association. The Dental Health Foundation I'd mentioned previously is something that was hugely influential. So I, I actually believe the forum was going to be, if you like, the catalyst, which was going to drive change. But the forum was also a vehicle for consultation. I believe in growing policy from the ground up listening carefully to the people that are going to be involved in the implementation. If you, if you don't consult, and, and also you have to, I've had the privilege of, of, of being around, for example, when Ireland got its first chief dental officer. There was a dental advisor, the late Seamus McNeil. When he retired, the Irish Dental Association led a campaign to get a chief dental officer at deputy secretary level in the Department of Health and deputy chief medical officer level. And they succeeded. What happened later on was the post was there, but it wasn't quite at the same level. I think, for example, the Irish Dental Association 
has to be central to all policy development in the context of dentistry, including appropriate structures for the various aspects of dentistry, including general dental practice and including um, the uh, the health service executive practice. And the consultative forum is the key but it's the key to so many things. It's the key to getting agreement on a, on a dental act. It's the key to getting a, a agreement on new dental schemes. But it's also the key for the dental profession to develop, to, to develop a, a, an opportunity for those who have careers in dentistry into the future. There's no doubt that dentistry needs a lead organisation. And I think the Irish Dental Association, I'm certain that if people support it and encourage its development, uh, that it will also help the development of the profession in all its aspects. We would not have professor consultants in the Dublin Dental Hospitals paid exactly the same as their medical counterparts without the Irish Dental Association. We would not have had consultants in the health board or the HSE dental service without the Irish Dental Association. We would not have had a social welfare dental benefit scheme without the Irish Dental Association. And the schemes that happened for, for health boards could have been greatly improved by more active direct involvement by the Irish Dental Association and all of its members in, in, in designing a future. And I also think that in terms of continuing professional development, that's a key role for the Irish Dental Association in ensuring whether you're in Ballina or in, 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 in Kinmare in Kerry, that you have access to what helps you be a, a, a well-equipped dentist working with people from the dental schools and experts abroad. Very good. You touched on it there. Your appointment as Secretary General in the Department of Health was a great honour for you. It gave you a unique insight into how policy decided. It was very rare that a, a dentally qualified appointment is made in any government department. And yet today, dentists would say that dentistry seems to be very low on the list of priorities within the, within the department. Is that really how it is? Or if it is, will that ever change? And what do you think should happen now? One of the the things you you learn when you move up the chain of command is that government policy and circumstances of the day dictate what the priorities are. And one of the things that I learned as a very young dentist, you have to be prepared to be an advocate and you have to be prepared to have a clear, coherent policy and strategy which you can sell to policymakers. If there was one thing I would encourage the dental profession to do would be to, if you like, recharge themselves, get back in under the Irish Dental Association umbrella, work cohesively and collectively on key policy agendas, work the political system. Go back to what I told you about Art McGann. Every politician has to sit in a dental chair. When we were sorting the Dental Act of 1985, we knew every dentist in Ireland was on our side and we knew that they had all of the political system in every party completely au fait with what the Irish Dental Association's policy was. We need to do the same thing. We can, it's the, it's the I, was, I attended yesterday a thing on cardiology because I'm associated with the Heartbeat Trust. I think dentistry can have a major impact but I think what people need to do is to maybe learn some of the things that we, about some of the things we did in the past, but to create that coalition of the willing. But I'm, I'm absolutely convinced if the dental profession come together in all of its dimensions, I'm certain whoever is at secretary general level or whoever's at ministerial level or at the level of the Tishku, the Tanishta, they'll be listened to. One of the other things I would say as well is that the Senate nominations 
are hugely important because the Irish Dent Association does have the right to nominate people to the cultural and educational panel. And in fact, it, 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 it needs to encourage maybe one or two of its own members to consider running for the Senate. And remember, in the context, I should be one of, as, as a Secretary General, I should be one of, of many dentists who will succeed in, 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 into high office. But the thing about being in high office is that the, the actual priorities are dictated by your minister, they're dictated by the government that you serve, and they're dictated by the Oireachtas. And what, in order to, to be effective, the more effective ones are, I, I, I can talk about, say, for example, how the nurses' organisation achieved their chief nursing officer. They had to, the, the, the INMO are, are very effective on behalf of their members, and so are the consultants and a whole range. So the Irish Dental Association has been effective in the past and can and is being effective, but it just needs to reshape and to be honest with you, it's, it's, it's more of a responsibility for the leaders of the various sections of, of the dental profession to come together and work with you in the office you hold as, as Secretary General. Because if you have one Secretary General, one President talking to the Minister or talking to the powers that be with a coherent strategy to improve oral health, I have no doubt you'll be successful. Thank you so much, Ambrose. That's a very positive note on which to finish. We could continue speaking for hours. Unfortunately, our time is up. Uh, Ambrose McLaughlin, long-standing dentist and former Secretary General of the Department of Health, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And joining us now to shed more light on her recollections uh, in a lifetime of dentistry is Professor June Nunn. I'm delighted to welcome a former Dean of the Dental School here in Dublin. Thank you for joining me. Can we start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your background, your initial dental education and how you came to your role here in Dublin? Thank you, Fintan. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, my back, I started um, my career, I wanted to do medicine, like a lot of dentists, and uh, eventually got a place in dentistry in Dundee, of which I became very fond over five years. I, I really like Scotland. And in fact, we are now planning uh, our 50-year reunion in 2025, if we all live that long. Um, and I go back uh, from time to time. I have colleagues there and I do postgrad exams. And in 2018, they instituted the June Nun Lecture, part of the Athena Swan Initiative. And so I gave the inaugural lecture and I go back, obviously, every couple of years then, then for that. So, And then I was already married as an undergraduate, so I followed my husband down to the West Midlands. I had a job there in the public dental service and Worked in clinics and caravans and schools for the blind and disabled, all those sorts of things. But I was a bit bored after two, three years and got a job in the dental school. They were part-time lectureship and then a full-time lectureship uh, teaching perio, public dental health, uh, children's dentistry, all sorts of things. Um, and had to gain additional qualifications. You always these hoops to jump through when you're in academic dentistry. So I did my uh, public dental health qualifications because I was going to be teaching on the master's course, so I needed to be a step ahead of the students um, and enjoyed that. But then my husband got moved up to Newcastle, and so I was lucky then and got a, a job there in the dental school, uh, and that was in the Department of child dental health uh, with a very good 
mentor, John Murray, who was the, the head of department and then became dean of the school and really pushed people. Um, you know, if you didn't get your fellowship, he said, right, you put your money on for the next exam because every time you don't take it, you fail. And did my PhD then in disability studies. Um, I think that interest had been engendered since I'd been in the public service in, in, in the West Midlands. Um, and then uh, after that, I um, came back to Ireland in 2001. And that, you know, leads us neatly. You became the first professor of special care dentistry in Britain or Ireland. So your experience, and you've touched on it there, presumably informed your interest and ultimately your, your achievement in becoming the first professor. Yes, I think there's a... I always say to people who talk about firsts and, and titles is that a title really is only a license to do a job. And I think you're always mindful of that or you should be keeping that in focus and not get carried away by, by titles necessarily. But yes, I had worked um, in obviously the public service in, in the UK in my job in, in Newcastle. I had primarily been in, in child dental health but because I was interested and people tended to come back to me my patients grew old with me so I had a, an adult cohort of patients then uh, with uh, special care needs and so I saw this opportunity in Dublin. Dublin in, in 2001 there was money there was enthusiasm to do things um, you were very close to decision makers to politicians here in Ireland and you could make things happen and so uh, with that in mind I uh, was successful in in becoming the Professor of Special Care Dentistry. I think you're being unduly modest but uh, I think equally that you know the, the, the recognition of your great achievements by Dundee uh, and the continuing endorsement of your many colleagues for the achievements that you've done, but also a recognition of what remains to be done probably only serves to highlight the, the fact that it was long overdue that we saw a chair in special care dentistry. I think so. The, the initiative meant that we could, with that funding from the Department of Health, uh, establish undergraduate programmes, postgraduate training because there are some fabulous people in the public dental services here all working very much in isolation who needed a, a focus they needed places for secondary and tertiary referrals but they also needed uh, the opportunities for further education and, and training so that was important um, and to provide that 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 clinical service at, the, at that level uh, alongside very interested and enthusiastic colleagues, people who went through training programs and, and then became involved in the, the teaching and service provision. Because you never do these things on your own. You talk about one person, but it's always very much uh, people working together to do that. And the research that was there to underpin what you were doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And because you're working in Trinity, the KPIs for them are research funding, grants, um, PhD students. And so you've got to be doing those things alongside the education and training programmes. And can I ask you, because very often people will, um, I suppose, in their thinking, assume that it's primarily a role for the public service to provide care for 
special care patients. Clearly, that's not the, the, the case, that there is a role for general practice. And I know it is something that is being discussed currently within the general practitioner community, within the association. How do you see general practitioners having a role in providing care to special care patients? A very significant role because for the majority of people um, the danger of of putting a label on somebody with say cerebral palsy or autism is that people say well automatically they've got special needs and if you talk to those people they hate that label anyway and for many of them they don't have needs that are very different from any other patient that is managed well in general dental practice and so I think those specialist services in the community and within hospitals are really for those people who cannot for whatever reason access care in in primary care settings. Now, if I can turn the conversation uh, away, and I had a separate discussion with Dr. Eamon Croke, who's the incoming president of the association, and he was telling me that his initial involvement was in the Metro branch. And when he became involved, one of the first things he did was to approach a number of people to to work with him in the Metro branch. And he spoke uh, very gratefully and uh, appreciatively of his efforts in persuading you to become involved in the, the Metro branch of the association for a period of three years. Can you tell us your recollections of the work he did with the Metro branch? Yes, I, I'd been a member of the British Dental Association when I worked in the UK. And so it was natural that when I came back here uh, that I would uh, become part of the Irish Dental Association. It was also very good to be able to travel around the country to other branches um, because I was going to be talking about special care dentistry, but also to meet other people. Um, but I remember the time in the Metro branch, a very enthusiastic committed group of people. Eamon, obviously, uh, amongst them, um, Sean Malone um, was another person. I think he was president at that stage as well. Eddie Cotter, people who would uh, come to meetings straight from work, meetings in the evening, and um, would think laterally, think outside the box, and had great enthusiasm for establishing really high-quality annual scientific meetings here at the Metro branch, uh, really uh, interesting programmes for on a monthly basis uh, for members here uh, as part of the, that Dublin group and who were committed in all sorts of other ways to things like the Dental Council. We, we had also a very useful um, working group when we were trying to establish general professional training here in Ireland and there were members of the association um, I'm thinking um, particularly of Conor McAllister um, as well as Eamon, but Eamon was involved in the Dental Council at the time, so that was uh, more difficult for him to wear two hats. But people who were really committed to ensuring that lifelong learning beca- would become a reality in Ireland and wasn't something that people had to make huge efforts on their own in a very isolated way to try and establish Um, And I I enjoyed working with those people. And I think it was testimony to the strength of good working relationships with personalities who who want to achieve outcomes and who work well together and work for the common good and, and committed huge amounts of time to doing that of their own personal time. Yes, it has been uh, very striking to me, having worked in a number of professions, that the the sense of 
uh, dentists believing that the answers they they will find themselves. They won't sit back and wait for someone to provide them with the answers and the, uh, and the sense of, I suppose, self-reliance and stubborn independence makes probably uh, mm. a good combination. And, and you've touched on some of the 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 individuals you met along the way and the leaders and some of the key initiatives. Something you and I personally worked on and there is a Newcastle link again was the National Oral Health Forum in 2013 when the late Professor Jimmy Steele came over to chair a day-long meeting here in the Dublin Dental School. Can you tell us about your memories of that and what you, th- you, you think we hoped to achieve and the extent to which we did succeed or, or otherwise? I think in the lead up to that, there had been a a recognition for years that the oral health strategy or the initiatives that that provided policy direction for dentistry uh, was very old, was out of date, and that we needed uh, an oral health strategy that would allow us to to work between the HSE and the Department of Health and all the other stakeholders to establish a a dental service in Ireland that recognised how rapidly the evidence base moved on and what the needs of the population were. And the value of that, rather like the forum we had to move general professional training into the forefront of people's minds, was that we were able to draw together a very wide group of stakeholders, people within... Uh, general dental practice, the public service, um, and particularly looking outside dentists. It wasn't just about dentists, but it was all members of the dental team, um, the the dental manufacturers, people who had interests in promoting oral health uh, within Ireland and putting it on a footing that would deliver uh, patient-centred care uh, that had a, a good evidence base. And there was collegiality in that meeting and a real desire to to move the agenda forward uh, so that people uh, could engage in new different ways of working. Yeah and I suppose ultimately there are well no misgivings the association would have had with aspects of what became Smile August Launcher Care but I suppose if nothing else the forum in 2013 speeded up the ultimate publication of the first ever oral health strategy in the history of the state. Mm-hmm. Yep yep. And I know you said earlier you were uh, dismissing the 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 praise I, I was throwing in your direction as the first professor of special care dentistry, but you were also the first female head of a dental school in the Republic of Ireland, possibly in the whole island of Ireland. I didn't check that. Um, do you think that for academic dentistry that whatever barriers may have existed previously to women going into academic dentistry, that that's something uh, uh, for the archives it's or are there particular challenges for women in advancing in academic dentistry? I don't think that's the case now and I don't think it's the case in dentistry generally. I, when I look back at particularly the people who came on some of our postgraduate diplomas um, as well as the degree programs, um, a majority of whom in some cases would have been women, they managed to juggle 
a, a working life, they are doing a postgraduate diploma or degree, they're raising a family. I think they do that their workloads are phenomenal and they achieve huge amounts uh, running a business uh, alongside that. So I don't think across the spectrum of dentistry that that being a woman is a disadvantage or there is a disincentive to taking on dentistry as a career. Um, in academic dentistry, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are all these hoops that you have to jump through uh, in order to become established in, in a teaching environment and the expectations there are, are quite significant uh, alongside all the other things of the day-to-day -day job and, and perhaps uh, domestic commitments. But I think that nowadays none of these are insurmountable and I think that uh, it's, everything's possible for, for women in dentistry. Well, that's good to hear. And in terms of the way in which dentists are educated, there have been changes what changes do you see coming in the years ahead? When I look back on, on my uh, time in, in Dundee, uh, the education and training was very conventional, <laughs> lecture-based and uh, no small group teaching. And it was very much the, the old style chalk and talk. Birmingham was different in that we, we were able to uh, work in small group. We had huge numbers of students going through the dental school in Birmingham, but so there was much more small group teaching. Newcastle the same. Coming to Dublin, I, one of the attractions of the job was the problem-solving approach uh, to delivering education and training. Very challenging for students brought up with Leaving Cert where they were attuned to rote learning and suddenly they are their minds were being opened up to the possibilities of investigating things for themselves, not necessarily being given solutions. And when you look at the change in not the profession, but in the population and their needs uh, nowadays, the, the, the goal has got to be more interprofessional training. We need to work alongside medics, alongside physios uh, and, and other primary care providers because our patients are becoming so complex and the a conventional rather siloed training that we deliver in, in dentistry or have done up till now isn't going to fit the needs of patients into the future. Okay so while clearly a lot has been done there's plenty more to do so Professor June Nunn, thank you so much. Uh, I'm delighted personally to have you along here today and thank you for your time, for your insights and wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And that's it from The Whole Truth for this episode. You can follow the Irish Dental Association on Twitter at Irish Dentists or visit our website dentist.ie for a full list of upcoming events to mark this our centenary year. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>